Some artists have an intimate relationship with pain. For many of us, pain is something that we internalize and struggle to put into context. For people like Tammy Terrell, pain is a window that when opened, the power of music takes flight. We've talked quite a bit about Marvin Gaye on this show, but we haven't devoted enough attention to his recording partner, the steadily outstanding and painfully good Tammy Terrell. Her songs, in particular the ones that she recorded with Marvin, are indelible. Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, California Soul, Tammy Terrell's career was like lightning, brilliant and brief. She suffered abuse at the hands of men all her life, and yet she remained undeterred in her resolve to be recognized for her genius, her skill, her humanity. She had been afflicted with debilitating headaches since she was a child, and yet her medical condition was ignored, shrugged off, as is the case for so many women and people of color. Staring in the face of this pain, she would chart a staggering seven hit singles on the Billboard Hot 100 between the years 1965 and 1968. Her unique style and vocal prowess led her to a record contract with Motown before her 20th birthday. And famously, she was the only person that the great Marvin Gaye thought could truly match his tone and timbre. Their 1968 hit single, You're All I Need to Get By, is perhaps the greatest soul duet of the classic era. On the recording, Tammy's voice reaches out from the darkness and yearns for comfort and maybe even a hint of bliss around the edges. You're All I Need to Get By is a true wonder of modern pop recording, if for no other reason that Tammy recorded it while recovering from one of her eight brain surgeries for the tumor that was slowly and painfully taking her life. One night in 1969, Marvin Gaye and Carla Thomas headlined the Apollo Theater. As the band began to play You're All I Need to Get By, Marvin could hear a faint voice in the crowd singing along. It was Tammy Terrell, nearly broken by cancer, seated in a wheelchair in the front row. Marvin came down off of the stage and sang one last duet with his friend. Tammy Terrell died a year later at the age of 24. As remarkably short as her physical existence was, her legacy reverberates throughout pop music, and her voice is one of the great anchors of soul. Bob Dylan once said, Behind every beautiful thing, there's some kind of pain. I'm not sure this is necessarily true, but I am sure that Tammy Terrell understood pain better than most and also knew that her life would be defined by beauty. My name is Micah McKee. I'm a songwriter, and this is American 100.
Broadcasting from the musical center of the universe into the vast stretches of the universe, this is American 100. Welcome, welcome, welcome to American 100, and welcome back. My name is Micah, and this is my trusted robot companion, Rando. Hello. And Rando, on today's episode, we're going to dig into the 80s a little bit. And uh, I was wondering, are you a fan of 80s music? Micah, I'm a huge fan of 80s music. I had a cousin who was a drum machine. That is so cool. I'm, I'm really into drum machines. Did y'all hang out very much? Yeah, actually we did. And one thing I really loved about her is she was always on time. Oh man, are you making jokes right now? No, no, I'm serious. And any comment she made about me was never off base. (sighs) And I made sure never to make her mad because there would be repercussions. Okay, that's enough. Well, at the end of every episode, Rando randomly chooses a year and two songs from the Billboard Year End Hot 100 for us to discuss. And at the end of the last episode, he chose number five and number 41 from the year 1989, which correlate with Janet Jackson's Miss You Much and Sheena Easton's The Lover and Me. So without further ado, let's take a trip back to the year 1989. (laughs) you did record some other tracks that you thought you'd be able to use for this album and then didn't like them. Was that discouraging? No, no, no. Actually, I loved them. Um, I recorded 18 songs all in all, but I wanted to choose the best songs to go on the album, so I just saved the rest. Um, some of them have been B-sides, and, and uh, I don't know, maybe I'll use them for the next album, but uh, I was really happy with what turned out with this album. Songwriting can be a painstaking and arduous experience. The Rolling Stones' classic Sympathy for the Devil went through countless rewrites and jam sessions before the finished product that we all know and love came to fruition. Don Henley had the ideas for Heart of the Matter kicking around in his brain for 42 years before J.D. Souther and Mike Campbell came in to finally complete it. Pop songs can be elusive. There's no blueprint, no magic spell. But every now and then, you're sitting there at the writing desk, and the whole thing just falls into place. Sometimes when I'm writing a song, I'll use the tonality and the specific sound of an instrument as a launch pad for creative ideas. This was the case with Janet Jackson's 1989 hit, Miss You Much. And along with Janet Jackson, Jimmy Jam Harris and Terry Lewis, the writers and producers of Miss You Much, used sound as their launch pad. This is the Lindrum. 
It's one of my favorite drum machines and it was manufactured between 1982 and 1985. It has a silky smooth compressed feel and it appears all over Janet Jackson's 1986 album Control. But for Rhythm Nation 1814, an album that would usher in a new era of Janet Jackson's music, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis thought they needed a bolder, more aggressive drum sound. Enter the SP-1200, a drum machine that would go on to dominate hip-hop for a generation and would give us this unforgettable opening to Janet Jackson's biggest single on the Hot 100. It starts with dissonance before moving on to something a little bit more familiar. The sound of this beat is the launch pad. Jimmy is rocking this in the control room and being sucked into the industrial clatter of the SP-1200. He hits the synth with a dash of terror. Then Janet walks over to the keyboard and hits the right note at the right time. The song has now undergone three tonal shifts in less than 30 seconds. That keyboard is the Insonic Mirage, featured on Prince's Sign of the Times, The Cure's Disintegration, and of course Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814. Though the verse is multi-layered, using an Oberheim OB-8 for the bass and the signature SP-1200 for the beat, the arrangement is rather simple. Drums, bass, and Janet's distinctive vocal. This was certainly deliberate. Jam and Lewis wanted to be sure that the listener was having a Janet Jackson experience on Rhythm Nation as opposed to just a collection of singles. All those background vocals, that's all Janet. And for the chorus, where some pop producers would opt for a rousing string section or a huge raging guitar, Jam and Lewis injected it with swirls of Janet herself. This groove has flavor notes of Morris Day in the Time or Prince's work for the 1989 Batman film but it's quintessential Janet Jackson. In fact, what they do to elevate the second verse are things like this. Janet Jackson's vocal idiosyncrasies. In that way, it's closer to an Elvis record than a Prince record. Jam and Lewis were notorious for not being able to settle for just one hook. Instead, they'd smash them together to create a composite hook made up of two infectious sections. That way, when the chorus arrives, it's like the rug is being pulled from underneath you. When pop music flows this effortlessly, you don't have to make room for more genius. It's already waiting there, just beneath the surface. Now, the hardest part of a song for me to write is the bridge. This connective tissue in songwriting can seem forced, but in Miss You Much, the bridge seems to appear out of thin air. We're reminded of just how sweet Janet Jackson can be. Until the assertive dark synth takes hold, 
and were plunged back into the fire. On the Billboard year-end Hot 100 of 1989, Janet Jackson's Miss You Much landed at number five. During its recording, Jimmy Jam said that God was in the room, proving that not all great art is born out of pain. Sometimes you just need the right sounds, the right voice, and perhaps a little divine providence. Coming up, tenderness gets a makeover. You are listening to American 100. Hey folks, thanks for listening to American 100. I'm Micah McKee and I wrote the original music for this show and produced it along with Asher Griffith. And if you like content like this, then uh, think about dropping something in our jar. Head over to patreon.com slash cicada radio. Even a pledge of as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. We do this show because we love music and we love radio. So head to patreon.com slash cicada radio and uh, help us out if you can. Thanks. Pop songs are like superheroes. They seem to have magical powers capable of rescuing us from danger, from darkness. But beneath the trappings, beneath the costumery of production, there is a secret identity that tells us about the true nature of the songs and where they came from. The pop songs of the 1980s wore elaborate costumes of neon-colored spandex. The trappings that these songs came in were designed to pick you up off the ground, to sell you an image of materialism and artifice. This is 1985's Take On Me by Norway's AHA. It's one of the most beloved pop hits of the 1980s and is a staple of countless 80s DJ nights around the world. Listen to its effervescence, its bubbly saccharine feel. Now listen to the same song by the same band with a bit of a more unplugged arrangement. the difference. When the ornaments are stripped away, the glitter and the gold dust washed off, a certain tenderness, a sadness is revealed. This is the song's true identity. Kenneth Brian Edmonds 
better known by his stage name, Babyface, is one of the most prolific songwriters of the contemporary pop era. Before he wrote hits for Tony Braxton, TLC, Eric Clapton, and Madonna, he wrote lots of dance music in the 80s. For Bobby Brown, The Whispers, and Johnny Gill, Babyface's songwriting is mostly done on acoustic guitar, sometimes piano. His most well-known hit is the tender-hearted Change the World. Released in 1996, Change the World belongs to a time unlike the 80s where earnestness and authenticity were hot commodities. In a world where acoustic singer-songwriters like Jewel, Paula Cole, and Tracy Chapman were chart toppers, Babyface's Change the World was right at home. So how did the same artist who dealt in this kind of tenderness bring himself to write something like this? Reaching as high as number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1989, The Lover and Me was performed by Scottish singer-songwriter Sheena Easton. When Babyface and L.A. Reid came forward with The Lover and Me, there was a deliberate goal of purporting a saucier, glitzier, and perhaps more materialistic, at least in terms of production, image. In fact, Babyface has stated that he was trying to emulate Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, producers of Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. But while Rhythm Nation employs the same kind of synthetic sounds and drum machines as this track, it uses them in a way that is fully integrated into the message and meaning of the song itself. The Lover and Me, on the other hand, seems like a tender sentiment struggling to get out from under the weight of its own production. In the song, Easton is pleading us to look beneath the surface to try and find the romantic person hidden within. In a similar fashion, the listener is trying to find the meaning in this song beneath its surface. The song is catchy enough and was a moderately successful hit in 1989. But knowing Babyface's songwriting, I can't help but think that there are deeper forces at work within this song's anatomy. And maybe it's true when they say love is blind. I can help you if you 
The song itself is fairly simple, and I'd imagine that this is how it started, with a guitar, a melody, and a message. The reality, though, is that an arrangement like this probably would not have charted in the 1980s. A production as sparse as this would likely have to wait another 10 years. Luckily, the writer of The Lover and Me would wait another 10 years, and in the late 90s would score a hit record based around a melody and a message. At long last, secret identity revealed. Coming up, we talk to the incredibly wise and talented Joy Clark. You're listening to American 100. Hello, all you scream breathers and doof warriors. If you are looking for a place to promote your screams or your doofs, look no further. You are there. Here, I mean, right here. This spot right here could be your spot. These words coming out of my mouth could be promoting your product, service, or establishment. They aren't, though, because you haven't discovered us. But you are hearing this, I guess, so they could be. Hit up louder at cicadaradio.com for more details. That's louder at cicadaradio.com to give these words your meaning. Thanks. Now back to the show. If someone were to ask me who the most unpretentious yet most undeniably talented songwriter that I know personally is, I'd probably say Joy Clark. Joy is every bit a music lover, as she is a great musician, and here's a bit of my conversation with her. We're going to talk a a little bit about um, Janet Jackson and Sheena Easton, but I want to know, did you have any experience growing up with Janet Jackson's music, or was that a thing that you were familiar with, or? You know what? No. (laughs) Like, I grew up knowing who Michael Jackson was and Jackson 5, but I grew up in a very... um, Christian home, so I was kind of kept from most secular music. But I mean, I knew of Janet Jackson. I just, I, I couldn't be a fan because I didn't, I didn't really know her music. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 kind it's kind of new territory. But I mean, I love Janet Jackson now. <laughs> you know, she's got this. Um, She's just got this dazzling thing about her. I mean, it, it, it's like, it's sexy, and then it's really cute, <laughs> you know? It's like, man, she's a, she's, <laughs> it's like, she is just, she can draw you in. She draws you in. You know, Babyface wrote uh, The Lover and Me, and this is not a song that he's really known for, but is he an artist that you kind of uh, vibe with? You know what? When Can I See You Again was the song. That was the song. And I mean, his, his, his guitar chop, I mean, his, his songwriting. It, it's, it's up my alley. It's the 
it's the type of thing that I love. And it's a song, you know? It's a stripped down song. It doesn't have all the scent. I got to see him live in concert. He had a guitarist and he had a drummer and a bass player. And they killed it. It, it was like high, high energy, lead guitar and everything. And I mean, he was just spot on and I was blown away. You know, there's nothing better than breath, than letting the song have time and letting it breathe. I want to ask you about your process because um, this episode we talk, we talk about coming up with ideas for songs and sometimes it being challenging and sometimes it being painstaking and sometimes being agonizing. And on average, is it, is it pretty hard for you to get to where you're going creatively in a, in a songwriting process? Um, it's not, it's never hard to make the music. It starts with a feeling. And then I pick the guitar up and I play something. And that's usually the song. <laughs> and so the guitar uh, usually dictates. I don't sit down and write, but usually it's just pick up the guitar and play. And then I make a melody, and then that's the song. That's always the process. There's never, I've never had lyrics first. You know, sometimes uh, songs take a long time to really reveal themselves to you. Um, did you have a, that experience with one of your songs uh, ever? Just a song that took a while for you to just get it together? Another Lonely Night. <laughs> Another Lonely Night was off of my first single, like in, in 2014. I usually write the chorus first. It, it, took, it took me a while. It took me maybe, I don't know why it took so long, but it took a long time. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk about um, some songs that you associate with overcoming pain and suffering because, um, you know, overcoming pain and suffering is a theme in, in all of pop music, and it's a theme that we can all relate to. And I was wondering if you had uh, a few songs that, uh, uh, that you associate with this feeling and this, this universal idea. So Smoke and Ashes by, um, I guess, my first love, Tracy Chapman. I remember seeing her perform this song on Austin City Limits, and I was about maybe 15 at the time, so I, I just started playing guitar, and uh, there, there's a lyric. My right is your wrong, when you're right then I'm left with nothing. Like, what? My right is your wrong, when you're right then I'm left with nothing. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how did she write that? She's, she's got a double bridge in that song. Well, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, it's like another verse. And it's, it, it starts on the A minor. So it's like a twist. And uh, I remember when I was learning how to play it, I was just excited. I was like, wait, now she, she's, she's playing this song in A and then she goes to A minor. It just was like, oh, this is so cool. She like did something different. Uh, Goodbye to Love by The Carpenters. Goodbye to Love. Now, now I, I will say this. I couldn't listen to a lot of secular music, but for some reason, I don't know how I got the CD, but I 
think my, my, my brother had it or he was a part of like a CD thing. It was on the greatest hits, yeah. So it was with Superstar and Top of the World. And I was singing the lyrics, uh, I, was, I was talking to my sister uh, and we were talking about the lyrics like, man, no one ever cared if I should live or die. Time and time again, the chance for love has passed me by. And we were like, this is, this is, it sounds like a happy song. It sounds like a, a happy song, but the lyrics are really heavy, really tasty lyrics. And just, just her voice, that, that low end, that low end of that, it's just so rich. I love Karen Carpenter. The, the solo on, on that song, the first solo I memorized, I committed to memory when I got my first electric guitar. <laughs> I, I don't know what moved me to, to do it. I just, it, it's so melodic and it's so perfect. Like technically it's not that demanding, but just the melody of it. Well, Joy, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Micah, thank you for having me. We thank Joy Clark for coming on the show, and you can check out Joy's music at joyclarkmusic.com. Well, it's that time again, Rando. It's time for you to select two random songs in a random year for us to discuss on the next episode of American 100. Commencing randomization. The year 1969 and the numbers 11 and 69. Which correlate with 1 by 3 Dog Night and 25 Miles by Edwin Starr. American 100 is produced by myself, Micah McKee, and co-produced by Asher Griffith, and is, of course, presented by Cicada Radio. And my friends Jonathan and Julia Priedis were kind enough to have me as a guest on their recent episode of Ranking the Beatles, which you can listen to anywhere you get podcasts. And in honor of the Fab Four, we're going to take you out with no reply. From all of us here at American 100, thanks for listening, and always keep a song in your heart. This happened once before, when I came to your door, no reply. They said it wasn't you, but I saw you peek through your window. I saw the light, I saw the light, I know that you saw me, as I looked up to see your face. This is Cicada Radio. Sing, love, die.